Welcome to Japanese History for Gaijins, where we unravel the history of Japan. All together, isn't that nice? Last time, we looked at some very strange ways to rule a country, mostly very unique to Japan. You had the emperors and different families, they're all trying to rule. But what were they like? How did someone consider someone worthy of ruling? How did the rich and powerful families of the day express their power and education? Whilst there are many complex answers that I don't have enough time for and I don't know, uh, one that is the most interesting is poetry. Yes, poetry. The Heian era courts were full of poetry. Not only was it just a hobby or something you read in school, how well you could write poetry could affect your job, your family, your social standing, and generally your entire life based on poetry. Now English class isn't seeming such a waste of time at all, because what if this comes back? Poetry is a complicated thing just in itself, so we're going to focus on some uh, more specifics of what makes high-end court poetry and what makes it good. So, if you're ever thrown back a thousand years to Japan with a sudden expert knowledge of medieval Japanese and Chinese, uh, you're not going to become a country bumpkin who can't even write their poetry. <laughs> Scoff. <laughs> By the way, uh, this is a subject I have very limited experience in, and most people do. So I'll be trying my best to summarise uh, some arguments by uh, very renowned and good scholars, so I apologise if I'm not really conveying their message that well. The work of these writers isn't exactly light reading. The main article I used for this episode to research poetry is by Dr. Wiebke Denecker, who is the Professor of East Asian Literature at the University of Boston. She is extremely clever and has a Masters from her native Germany and a PhD from Harvard University. Just to be clear, if I get any of the arguments wrong, uh, please blame me. Because academic articles are hard, and Japanese poetry even more so. I will link the article in the description of this podcast so you can read it yourself and then comment how bad I understood any of the arguments involved. First of all, I'm pretty sure if any of us have heard of Japanese poetry, we've heard of a haiku. These are short poems of 17 syllables. Five, then seven, then five. And they're usually about nature. This is the most basic Japanese poetry gets in the modern day. Whilst they get longer and shorter going back and use loads of different formats, the main thing that maintains is the focus on nature. It's the beauty of the natural world that is something very ingrained in Japanese society and the language itself. Read any fiction translated directly from Japanese, like Haruki Murakami or other modern authors, and there is a unique focus on weather that is usually less so in Western writing. This is not just your high school poetry class looking at pathetic fallacy. No, don't laugh. That's just when weather in a piece of fiction reflects the emotion of a character. It is more special somehow in Japan, slightly because of the focus on Buddhism. Where nature is eternal, it is the setting against which the fleeting lives of humans are, are set against. 
It's in nature that all the universal truths can be discovered, and therefore they're the most worthy to reflect on. So much so that almost all Japanese poetry of the Heian era are not epic poems. That being big poems that tell stories, which we're used to with like Viking sagas or Beowulf. It is not focused on characters or personalities and their great deeds, it's more on reflecting on a theme or a topic or a sense of nature. Dr. Denica focused her article on something called topic poetry, one of the more popular styles in Heian poetry. It's generally a way to describe a format of poetry, essentially everyone follows a specific layout with a certain amount of Chinese characters used, and everything is in couplets. There are so many couplets. A lot of these poems have topic lines that then the rest of the poem is inspired from, thus topic poetry, but where do these topics come from? Well, like a lot of things in Japan at this period, they originally come from China. So much stuff comes from China, it's insane. The focus on emperors, government, and Buddhism, and along with that comes poetry. What is important to remember when studying poetry is that people aren't just looking at flowers and going, I'm gonna write about some daffodils. Before that, they've read the works of thousands of authors and also worked on their own, Almost all of these were Chinese, and the Japanese actually liked different authors to the ones that the Chinese liked. So it's like some of the poets getting super famous in Japan, but their home country couldn't care less. Well, like Tommy Lee Jones. I mean, he's an Oscar-winning actor, but in Japan, he's the coffee boss. Look it up online, it's insane. A lot of these poems all use very elaborate allusions to each other. When everyone has had to study poetry at university, everyone will know the same background and you can assume that everyone knows the same references to you. These kind of allusions to each other can show just how good a poet you are, because all these rich and elegant people at court would go, yeah, I know what you're talking about and I feel good that I recognised that obscure reference. Most of this was so essential that poetry was then used as a way to express and compete with others for status. Oh, and did I say compete? Because competitions, yes, you would have poetry competitions. So many poetry competitions. They are the rap battles of ancient Japan. Essentially, everyone would get the same theme or topic. So for example, the snow and the plum blossom, and then you'd have to try and make the best poem. But what makes a good poem? Because just nature and couplets and references to Chinese poetry, you can make a lot of bad poetry out of that. Well, apparently people did, but it hasn't survived. So woo, we don't have to read it. Like how in the future, I hope all the cringy videos of me on YouTube as a child will never be seen again. So to make a good poem, you gotta first have obscure references, the more obscure the better, to some great Chinese poems, maybe even quoting their lines in the poems. This happens a lot, essentially by just saying one line or a famous phrase of a poem in your poem, other people all know that poem and go, yeah, I get what you're saying, dog. Snap, 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 snap. And there's all metaphor and simile, and also you have puns and play on words that obviously don't work when you read the poems in English. 
but also with these metaphors you can compare different things to each other. So ones about snow, for example, people call it silk or feathers or jade powder. Each of these have their own cultural associations that help convey your meaning. Jade mostly means like life and revitalization. Second point to making great poetry, you gotta grab your season hat, because Japan has four seasons. Note, Japanese kids are actually taught this in school, that Japan is the only country with four seasons. It, it goes back a long way. So, a lot of these are weather-based poetry, and it's all about that time of year, or the associations of emotions that happen in different kinds of the year, and that happen with different kinds of seasons. I mean, you can definitely write about stuff that happened in the winter, in the summer, but summer stuff is hot right now. Yes, that pun was definitely intended. The third thing that you need for making great Japanese poetry is you've got to have some kind of allegory or message. Nature is beautiful, it's great, but this is the medium of poetry and it's about conveying a message about the real world. Don't let all the talk about cherry blossoms and plums and whatever fool you. It's actually all about people, but secretly, shh. So, for example, a lot of the poems, maybe about snow and plum blossom, which they usually happen at the same time in Japan, it's about confusion between the two and how one can be mistook for another. Therefore, it's important for rulers to attempt to distinguish between the two, aka a good ruler should search for the truth. I mean, it's not super deep, but these are poems that are thousands of years old, and you need to remember that a lot of them in the early Heian period are all based on copying and adapting old Chinese forms of poetry. Until later in the era, Japanese poetry becomes so prevalent that they start doing all these allusions and things to their own stuff so they can forget China. But at this point, they're amazingly creative within a very rigid structure, and it's so cool. But that's a very simplified view of the world of Japanese medieval poetry, aka everyone does it, everyone who wants to be someone has to be good at it, and if you're dyslexic, you're screwed. These poems are also, by the way, combined with calligraphy, the art of drawing the Chinese characters. So a lot of these poems attempt to provide the beauty of engagement in both a physical and a thoughtful way, because ah, those words are beautiful, but also their meaning is beautiful. And you get many extracts of poems that are used as decorations in great houses. So thank you, Dr. Denica. I'm sure I've misinterpreted enough of your work. So now it's time for me to misinterpret something totally on my own. It cannot be an episode about Heian court culture without referring to one of the most famous books of all time, The Tale of Genji, or the Genji Monogatari in its native Japanese. A book widely considered the first novel, and is a romance all about the life of a prince and his amorous life adventures in the Heian court, and then about his son, as spoiler alert, he dies two thirds the way through the book. So first, the Genji Monogatari. It's written by a woman. I know, shock. Women doing stuff in history? It's almost as if they exist, and are people. Anyway, the woman is referred to as Murasaki Shikibu. And I say referred to because both the author and all the characters in the book don't have names. What? You say? How can a book have no named characters? Or the author for that sense? Well, Murasaki Shikibu means Lady Murasaki, or Lady Purple, or Lady Purple Flower. This lady was very likely Fujiwara no Kaoruko. This lady was very likely Fujiwara no Kaoruko, 
who was a lady-in-waiting for the empress in the early 11th century. Though women weren't usually taught Chinese, because that was the language of government, her father taught her anyway. And most of the important things about Genji is that it's actually not written in Chinese, but in Kana, the now-developed Japanese script that only was invented about a hundred or years before Genji was written, which makes it amazingly exclusively Japanese. We have the diaries of Murasaki Shikibu, and through that we can see her life at court. She was widowed at a very young age, and from then she was invited to court and spent a lot of time caring for the Empress. So, she knows all the goss that's going on, and it's likely that a lot of the work, though fictional, is accurate. Well, at least a romanticised version of some real events, but definitely the setting and all the rigmarole that the characters go through are probably very accurate. It's the original costume drama, only the costume is what everyone is wearing right now. This means this book is an amazing little view window into the values and interests of the Imperial Court, as this was popular at the time and people read it for fun, that's what it was for. Her nickname essentially comes from a character in the book, and this is where it comes to characters. How does the tale of Genji have no names? Well, that's because Genji isn't a name, it's a term and it's used for a disinherited prince. Because Genji is all about a prince who's so great, but his mother dies young so he can't be emperor, and so his father the emperor expels him from the royal family so he can actually do stuff with his life. And then Genji harasses a lot of women. But he's beautiful, so it's okay. Anyway, everyone in the book is referred to by their job titles or some kind of descriptor because to write or address someone by their name in medieval Japanese, and even to a smaller extent in modern Japan, and extremely insulting to assume I can just call you Brian when I first meet you. Or say, if you met the Queen and went, yo Lizzie, what's up? So the Emperor in the story is just called the Emperor, the various men are described by their jobs that they hold, and many of the ladies are references to flowers or animals of some kind, or some kind of an event that happens around them, like you have the Lady of the Cicada Shell, or the Lady Murasaki, the Murasaki being a purple flower. Murasaki is one of the most important characters in the book, and it's where the author Murasaki likely got her nickname from. This also happens in medieval Japanese written accounts, so it's very difficult to sometimes know who someone's writing about, because the non-fiction court reports will only address people by titles and not by name, so if some titles shuffle around and it's suddenly a new person, if we're missing the part where that person changes, we have no idea that this is a new person because everything talking about the Grand Chancellor, if we don't have any idea of them talking about the Grand Chancellor, it can just be mental, because suddenly the Grand Chancellor has been the same for 150 years, and he's got multiple wives and daughters with different names and everything. I don't have enough words to go into how interesting the book is, but maybe in some future episodes. Just to say that poetry plays a huge part in it, and it does the mentioning of just one line or allusion to Chinese poetry, uh, to make its educated audience know what's going on. Like you just have some in-jokes or references in any movie or TV show today, though some of it is very fun when you're reading an annotated version, going, 
we don't know what this is a reference to. It's a reference, but who knows? Genji himself, in the book, is a master poet, and he uses it as part of his way to woo women. A lot of them against their will? I'm about a tenth of the way through the book at the time of recording. This book is over a thousand pages long. And the character and its portrayals are something really strange to the modern eye. It's hard to believe he's the protagonist, even if the first part I'm reading is his misspent youth. So, for example, the love of his life is Murasaki. When he first meets her, he is 18 and she is 10. Not okay. He likes her specifically because she is his stepmother's niece and looks like her. A lady that he has also slept with, possibly against her will. So he goes to the 10 year old girl's grandmother, because the girl's mother is dead, and goes, I want her. And everyone is like, Dude, like, no. No, she's so young. So even for like Heian Japan a thousand years ago, people are like, Dude, the hell are you doing? However, everyone else is also like, well, you are the embodiment of a god on earth, so I can't actually, like, refuse you, but, dude, rethink this, seriously, just anything. He's like, it's okay, guys, it's okay, it's not that weird, I just want to be her surrogate dad until she's old enough to marry. And once again, people are like, I'm sorry. Will you say that again, please? Please. What is going on in your brain? Well, the grandmother is sick, and she does say, to her credit, no. She specifically points out that Murasaki can't even write poetry yet, or write anyway. However, Genji is a single-minded individual, so he keeps sending them harassing messages going, send me some of her poetry, send me blah, 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 and... Everyone's just like, thank you for paying so much attention, but this is creepy as hell. So the grandma dies and it's very sad. So Genji, worrying that the girl's real father will come and pick her up, goes there, bodily picks up the girl and carries her home. Meanwhile going, hey, lady in waiting, you come with to look after her. By the way, everyone else, don't tell her dad where she's gone, cause hmm. And all the time he's literally carrying this 11-year-old girl, 10, 11-year-old girl, and going, shh, I'm your new daddy now. It's ridiculously creepy. He's then her teacher, and is meant to teach her how to be the perfect lady, how he likes. And this is grooming. This is so much grooming that it's in, yeah. And, but, guys, it's okay. He only ends up sleeping with her when he's sad when his first wife dies. This is mental. This is the protagonist of the book. Also, he fathers the new emperor secretly by sleeping with his stepmom. Also, he sleeps with so many people that one gets so angry that her spirit becomes a vengeful ghost who kills two other of Genji's lovers. By the way, I only use the term lover here as a really generous term because how much of this kind of portrayed reluctance of the women in his life is meant to either portray them as chaste and virtuous and how much is sometimes just the lady going, 
do not want. Ah, oh, but maybe it's lost in translation and a thousand years. One can only hope. It's a wild and rather uncomfortable ride. Though, like Romeo and Juliet, they were like 17 and 12, so maybe everyone around the world is messed up. I don't know. Anyway, that's 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 enough for this week. Next week might be something big, or we might have a little bit of hiatus just because I'm back at school and there is the threat that shall not be named, and I have to deal with all that stuff. You can keep updated on the Geeks and Guardians Facebook page for all stuff related to the History Podcast. I've been your host, John. Arigatou gozaimashita for listening, and bye!